Many folks struggle, especially in this life today, with a real problem, and that is the problem of pain and suffering. In fact, many have gone on to champion arguments against God and His existence based on the fact that evil exists in the world and that people suffer. In fact, we might go back to David Hume's remarks in his book, Dialogues Concerning Natural Religion, and his uh, re-quoting of Epicurus. And he says, Epicurus' old questions are yet unanswered. He says, is he willing, that is God, willing to prevent evil and not able? Then he is impotent. Is he able but not willing? Then he is malevolent. Is he both willing and able? Whence then is evil? And then that question continues on and this line of reasoning says God can't exist because pain and suffering exists in the world. And these two are mutually exclusive. That's not an accurate representation of the God of heaven, number one. And that's really not a fair addressing of the topic itself. But people really wrestle and struggle with that problem. In fact, Peter DeVry would go on to write in one of his works concerning the problem of pain and suffering that it has been turned like a fish hook. That is, the question mark has been turned like a fish hook into the human heart. Causing difficulties in reconciling the fact that difficult things happen to those who are faithful to God, and yet God still exists and cares for His own. How do we rectify those things? And while no doubt this is a real problem and people do struggle with it, There is another problem that I think every one of us wrestles with from time to time, and yet it is frequently unacknowledged. And that is the problem of pleasure. How do we as God's children choose and decide the pleasures that we are to engage in here below in this life while still yet maintaining a fidelity to the God of heaven? Has the church been reticent in addressing those things? Do we know maybe how we ought to pursue things that are a joy in life? We know Jesus says in John chapter 10 and verse 10, I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. Yes, we are very much concerned about eternal life and eternal things, but I'm convinced that even Jesus is referring to the fact that here in this life they can be enriched by the Gospel and the relationships that we have one another, and we can have pleasure and enjoy the things of this life. But how do we go about choosing our pleasures? How do we go about making sure that what we are engaging in is the right course of action? Paul would say in Romans chapter 8, really beginning in verse 6, "...for to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace." And note what he says, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, because it it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then, they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Is there a way that we pursue pleasures in this life that is in accord with God's standard for moral conduct and right living? I want us to look just for a moment as we begin this discussion at the book of Ecclesiastes. Many of you know what the preacher there says about everything that he pursues in life. And we may have said it from time to time as well. All is vanity. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. But open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 2 as we begin this discussion. There's something very unique going on here with the writer and the way he approaches what he's about to do. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 2, he said, I said in my heart, 
Go to now, I will prove you with mirth, that is with joy or happiness. Therefore, enjoy pleasure for the sole purpose of enjoying pleasure. And behold, this also is vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of mirth, what does it do? So I sought in my heart to give myself unto wine, yet acquainting my heart with wisdom, and to lay hold on folly till I might see what was that good for the sons of men, which they should do under the heaven all the days of their life. What is he saying here? I wanted to find out what things man could do that were enjoyable, that were pleasurable for him, all the while maintaining my wisdom so that I could critically analyze these things. How many of us critically analyze almost every event in our lives? I'm guilty sometimes of doing that. Analyzing, is this right? Is this wrong? Are we okay? What's going on here? So what does the preacher say that he's going to do? He's going to lay hold on wine. He's going to lay hold on folly. He's going to pursue pleasure to see what are those things that are good for mankind. Let's continue reading as to what he says. So, I made me great works. I built built myself houses. I planted vineyards. I made gardens and orchards. And I planted trees in them of all kinds of fruits. I made me pools of water to water therewith the wood that brings forth trees. I got me servants and maidens and had servants born in my house. Also, I had great possessions of great and small cattle above all that were in Jerusalem before me. I gathered me also silver and gold in the peculiar treasure of kings and of the provinces. I got me men singers and women singers and the delights of the sons of men as musical instruments and that of all kinds. What has he left out? Absolutely nothing. Continue reading. So I was great and increased more than all that were before me in Jerusalem. Also, and here's a key part, my wisdom remained with me. As he's going through all of these things, he's not caught up necessarily in the grandeur or the joy of those pleasures and overwhelmed. He's analyzing them to see if they are right and appropriate. And he says, and whatsoever my eyes desired, I kept not from them. I withheld not my, here's what he says, my heart from any joy. Anything that the writer wanted, anything that he desired, he said that he got, he did, he acquainted with just to see what was good for mankind. By the way, he had funds to do that as well. He was very well off. If Solomon is writing this, then we know that he is very wealthy and has the ability to acquire anything that he wants. And so he is doing all of these things. Continue reading. For my heart rejoiced in all my labor, and this was my portion of all my labor. And here's the conclusion. Then I looked on all the works that my hands had wrought, and on the labor that I had labored to do, and behold, all was vanity and vexation of spirit. There was no profit under the sun. Wait a minute. So you're telling me that we cannot have joy or pleasure in this life. It all amounts to nothing. No. It's not what he says. Read a little bit more closely. There was no profit under the sun. You see, when we leave God out of the picture, all joy, all pleasure has no meaning and no relevance. When we leave God out of a life, every joy that is had here only stays here, is not carried into the eternal, is not fulfilling in any way, and those relationships will end. 
So under the sun, he is absolutely right in light of a naturalistic perspective. If mankind just lives and dies and never continues on into eternity, all is vanity, and that is true. But what about when we bring God back into focus and have a real clear view of God's desires for mankind? How does pleasure then fall out, and is it beneficial? The answer is most assuredly yes. We think about the joys that we have with family, the games that we might play, staying up late at night, maybe the times that we spend by the fire enjoying the company and conversation. Are, all not, are those not pleasures that we enjoy? Yeah. What about a cool pool on a hot summer day? Nobody's had a hot day here in Valdosta, right? <laughs> That's a pleasure. We enjoy that. But the question arises, how do we choose those pleasures that are not inconsistent or out of harmony with God's standard for a Christian's conduct? See, I look around myself today and look at the things that are going on, look at the pleasures that people are choosing, and they are getting more and more and more perverse. They are getting more and more intense. They are getting more and more focused on themselves. They are very exclusive. We've almost moved into a sort of hedonistic view. We do whatever we want, whatever feels good, and you know, don't care about the ramifications or the fallout. Nike's slogan, by the way, just do it. What does that not lead to? It leads to that very thing. So we think about pleasure. It's a hugely important aspect of every person's life if we're to have a fulfilling life. Frank Borum, uh, an essayist, had this remark concerning pleasure in one of his books, Wisps of Wildfire, and I think it's important just to note for a moment, he says, laughter, merriment, and fun were quite evidently intended to occupy a large place in this world. Yet on no subject under the sun has the church displayed more embarrassment and confusion. One might almost suppose that here we have discovered an important phase of human experience on which Christianity is criminally reticent, a terra incognita which no intrepid prophet had explored, a silent sea upon whose waters no ecclesiastical adventurer had ever burst. A dark and eerie country upon which no sun had ever shone. We swing like a pendulum from the indulgence of the Epicurean to the severities of the Stoic, failing to recognize with the author of Ecce Homo that it is the glory of Christianity that, rejecting the absurdities of each, it combines the cardinal excellencies of both. He says, we allow without knowing why we allow, we ban without knowing why we prohibit. We compound for sins we are inclined to by damning those we have no mind to. We are at sea without chart or compass. Our theories of pleasure are in hopeless confusion. Is there no definite doctrine of amusement? Is there no philosophy of fun? There must be, there has to be, and there is. God did not leave us without the ability to determine those things that are right and those things that are consistent with godly conduct. We know that Peter says that he's given to us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us to glory and virtue. But what are they? I propose to set forth for you tonight just a few ways and a few principles that we read of in the Old Testament that might help us shape how we view the pleasures that we engage in, and to really put the litmus test down to see if what we are pursuing is right and in accord with what God would have His children to do and be. The first text is found in Judges chapter 7. If you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to continue leaving them open to Judges chapter 7. <clears throat> Many of us might be familiar with this passage. 
We know Gideon has struggled and wrestled with his own view of himself. An angel has appeared to him and called him a mighty man of valor while he was threshing wheat by uh, the threshing floor, or by the wine press rather, at night, hiding from the Midianites. And yet this angel appears out of nowhere and calls him a mighty man of valor. <laughs> There's a lesson all in that in itself, but we'll, we'll deal with that another time. And so Gideon begins to see that he is God's chosen vessel to lead Jerusalem or re- lead Israel into war against uh, Midian, the children of Midian. And because he's his vessel, he asks multiple times if he is sure, God, are you sure that I'm the one? God says, yes, absolutely, you are the one that's going to free Israel from the suppression or oppression of Midian. And so he goes and he realizes that he is facing a superior force. Gideon is facing about 135,000 men. How many does Gideon have? He starts out with 32,000. There's a principle here in the way that God deals with Gideon in this winnowing down that is important for our discussion in the problem of pleasure. So Gideon goes and they are going to war and God stops Gideon and says, Gideon, you have too many men. Here's what I want you to do. You take those men that are afraid, that are cowardly, that don't want to go into war, and you tell them that they can leave. Gideon says, okay. So he goes to the men. There's 32,000 of them. He says, all right, whoever wants to go home and not fight in the battle, doesn't want to come to war with us, God says you're free to go. He loses 22,000 men at that point. So Gideon more than likely is thinking to himself, wow, God is really going to prove my faith in him because we're going against a superior force of approximately 135,000 with 10,000. This is going to be a victory. This is going to be a great battle. But it's going to be dependent on God. So they head off to war. They're going... And uh, God, the text tells us, approaches Gideon again. Let's look at the text. The Lord said unto Gideon, The people that are with thee are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands. Lest Israel vaunt themselves against me, saying, Mine own hand has saved thee. Now, go and proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whosoever is fearful and afraid, let them go. And depart early from Mount Gilead. And there return to the people 22,000, and there remain 10. And the Lord said unto Gideon, The people are yet too many. Bring them down under the water, and I will try them for thee there. And it shall be that of whom I say unto you, this shall not go with thee, the same shall not go with thee. And of whomsoever I say unto thee, this shall go, the same shall not go. Or this shall not go, this one will not go. So what is God saying to Gideon? You have 10,000 men, that's 9,700 too many. We're going to winnow them down even more. But the winnowing down is the important part here. So they go down to the river. And he says, everyone that laps like a dog, you're going to send on their way. So he brought down the people, verse 5, under the water. And the Lord said unto Gideon, everyone that laps of the water with his tongue as a dog laps, him shalt thou set by himself. Likewise, everyone that boweth down upon his knees to drink, and the number of them that lapped, putting their hand to their mouth, were 300 men. But all the rest of the people bowed upon their knees to drink water. And the Lord said unto Gideon, By the three hundred men that lapped will I save you and deliver the Midianites into thine hand. Let all the other people go, every man into his place. What's the principle here of pleasure? Is water refreshing? Yes. Is water inherently bad? No. But here's the problem. When they were going to war, instead of thinking about what was before them, they put their heads down into the water and exposed their necks to the possible blow of the Midianites if they were there waiting to ambush them. What's the principle there? 
Why does God not want them with Him? Because they're not focused on the things that are coming. Any pleasure, and hear me clearly, any pleasure that takes our attention off of the God of heaven and leaves us distracted from Him is an illicit pleasure. Anything that consumes us to the extent that we no longer can see God or can see right living or can see spiritual matters, in effect, that which has overcome us is a pleasure that is best left off. You see, those things which take our attention off of our final purpose and overshadow our goals will cause us to ultimately be lost. We cannot be overwhelmed by the pleasures of this life. They must not be so distracting that it remove us from God. Can they be distracting? Yeah. How many of you like sports? I enjoy sports. How many of you know people who like sports so much that they have taken them away from God? I know those folks. Are sports fun? Yes, they are. Are we recreating? Yes, we're having a good time. But unfortunately, from time to time, the joy of that recreation has overtaken the view toward God and the love that we're supposed to have toward Him. And when that happens, then we have missed the point. That pleasure is something that is best left off. What does Jesus say in Matthew 6 and verse 24? He says, No man can serve two masters, for you either love the one and hate the other, or cling to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and mammon. No one can have two masters. Okay, We will have one. And oftentimes people have chosen the pleasures of this world to be their master. And that principle of continuing to look forward to the things that are ahead, to having a spiritual view or a spiritual eye towards those things, all the while enjoying the refreshment of the water, that has waned. They began to put their head into the water. If some find themselves trapped between service to God and the pleasures of this life. Do you know those folks? How many of you know those people that are just Christian enough to make themselves miserable? I see some smiles, you know exactly what I'm referring to. I'm talking about those people who view Christianity as a list of rules and not as a liberating thing, not as something that frees us from sin and allows us to have that freedom that we find in Galatians 5.1, but that is restrictive. You see, Christianity is in no way restrictive. God wants us to experience the best life. We know the Proverbs writer says the way of the transgressor is hard. You see, if we don't do life the way God wants us to do life, if we riddle it full of pleasures that cause us pain, then is that really a good and beneficial living? No. Not at all. Paul would say in 2 Timothy 3 and verse 4, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. And therein is the key. We cannot be lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. Can we enjoy having a good time? Absolutely. Should we? Yes. We don't need to be Eeyore all the time, right? Walking around. Or as I've heard it said, the frozen chosen. You know, we need to be optimistic, upbeat, have joy in our lives toward God, but always keeping the view toward God. God intends us to enjoy His creation. I love to fish. If you haven't known me or visited with me long, um, you may not know that, but if you talk to me longer than five minutes, you'll realize I really enjoy fishing. Does God want us to enjoy those things? Absolutely. But those things should not overwhelm our sensibilities toward Him. 
God's people cannot be so distracted by things of this life that they lose their focus on their Christianity. That's the point. You see, when we have absented ourselves from the focus of this life in order to fulfill a desire or refresh ourselves, then that pleasure itself is not a condoned one because it has removed us from God. Colossians 3 and verse 1, Paul would say, if you then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth at the right hand of the throne of God. Set your, and, and here's the important part, set your affections on things above and not on things of the earth, for you are dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall you also appear with Him in glory. What does Paul want us to do? He wants us to have our affections on the things that matter. That's where our love should be. Why did the church at Ephesus in the Revelation letter receive such a strong rebuke? Because they left their first love. He would say, repent and do thy first works, lest I come quickly and remove thy candlestick from out of its place. You see, there's got to be a love for God that overwhelms any idea of pleasure or sensibility toward pleasure that we have. That's the first principle. The second one is found in Chronicles. If you have your Bibles, jump over to 1 Chronicles chapter 11. 1 Chronicles 11, really beginning in verse 15. If you're familiar with the story at all, you know that... uh, David is at war with the Philistines. They've come and they've ousted him out of Jerusalem and now he's hiding in the hill country and he's with his mighty men of valor and he makes a statement that I suppose he later on wished that he could take back. But he wished that he had water from the well at Bethlehem. The Bible tells us now three of the 30 captains went down to the rock to David into the cave of Adullam and the host of the Philistines encamped in the valley of Rephaim. And David was then in the hold, and the Philistines' garrison was then at Bethlehem. And David longed and said, Oh, that one would give me drink of the water of the well of Bethlehem that is at the gate. And the three break through the host of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate, and took it and brought it to David. But David would not drink of it, but poured it out to the Lord and said, My God forbid it that I should do this thing. Shall I drink the blood of these men that have put their lives in jeopardy? For with the jeopardy of their lives they brought it. Therefore he would not drink it. These things did these three mightiest. What's going on here? When I was younger, I thought, why in the world would David pour that out? That was valuable just because they risked their lives for it. He should enjoy that because that was their gift to him. And in my own adolescent mind, I was thinking, well, you know, David shouldn't have poured that out because that's really a slight to them and everything that they went through to get it, to retrieve it for him. But as I grew older and began to study this concept more, what I realized was what David actually did was probably one of the finer points of his life and maybe one of the most noble things that he as the king in Israel ever did. See the heart of David here, thinking about these men and then thinking about where he stood in relationship to them. He was the king, right? Could he have ordered them to go down? Absolutely he could. They volunteered because he was a good leader and then they come back and bring that water to him that he had craved. And what is the sentiment here concerning pleasure? It's I have no right to enjoy a pleasure that can only be had at the expense of another. Think about that. I have no right to enjoy a pleasure that can only be had at the expense of another. 
You see, when we use people to get or derive some sort of pleasure from it, then that pleasure is an illicit one, not a condoned one. Why did David pour the water out on the ground there? Because he wasn't going to take advantage of the risk that other people had made to get that for him. He did not want to be seen taking advantage of them for his own personal desires. Would the water hat Adullam have worked? Yeah, it would have done the same thing, wouldn't it? It would have refreshed him. Maybe not exactly like the well at Bethlehem, but it would have done its job. You see, we are not to enjoy pleasures at the expense of others. Those devices that we might carry when the eyes linger too long at certain things they shouldn't be lingering on. When relationships are built at the expense of the relationship of our spouse, whether that's the same sex or another, it doesn't matter. When we put more time into those relationships out of the marital unions that we've pledged ourselves to. When we abuse the church and relationships there for our own gain. The list goes on and on. But a Christian does not have a right to enjoy a pleasure at the expense of another. I wish David would have done this with Bathsheba, then Uriah maybe would have lived. But if a pleasure violates the right another has to me, that is my time, my love, my affection, my guidance, my obligations, any of those things, if someone has a right to me, and I violate those to pursue pleasure, then that pleasure is an illicit one. It's not to be condoned. How does that govern the choices that we make in our life? How does that govern the way that we interact with our families? The value that we put on those things? You see, pleasure is fine when it doesn't violate these principles. James 4 and verse 17 says, To him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. If I spend $300 on the boat instead of $300 on paying the bills, then... What have I just done? I've put my personal priorities over the priorities of my family and jeopardized them, haven't I? What if I spend more time with other individuals from work rather than working on my relationships at home with both my children and my spouse? Who suffers from that one? My family? Ultimately, me. But you see, the extortion of others for our own pleasure or our own pursuits is wrong, no matter how you square it. We can't be those kinds of people that are extorting the time, the energies, the love, the affection out of other people. This includes the things that we do in private and in public. All of those things that we do in our life that would seek to undermine a relationship. See, children have a right to their parents. We have a right and an obligation to attend to them. But how many children suffer because the parents have put their own pleasures before the needs and the nurture and love of their children? We see that around us all too often, don't we? What about parents forsaking those children? Ultimately, God has the most absolute right to my life in all things. And whatever I delight in that is not consistent with His Word, and it's an expense on God's part, then that's an illicit pleasure. I might sum it up as sin. Those things that we do at God's expense, abusing the grace of Christ, No, and are all familiar with Romans chapter 6 and verse 1, right? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. That's an abuse. That's enjoying a pleasure at the expense of God, and we don't have a right to it. 
We might move forward to Hebrews 10 and verse 25. For if you sin willfully, after you've received the knowledge of truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sin, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation, which will devour the adversary. Think about those statements made. We cannot enjoy pleasure at one another's expense or even at God's expense. Has the oath that we pledge to God that is our lives been compromised because of our pursuits of those kinds of pleasures? You see, because if the pleasure takes advantage of another in any way, as we've mentioned before, it is an illicit pleasure. 2 Timothy 1 and verse 16 Paul would there say, The Lord give mercy to the house of Onesiphorus, for he oft refreshed me and was not ashamed of my bonds. What's the opposite? We ought to be a refreshment to others. Instead of extorting others' time and energy and love, we ought to be giving those things away to others and encouraging them. So what's the principle here in Chronicles? Any pleasure that is had at another's expense is an illicit pleasure. And then lastly, Solomon sums up our last principle in Proverbs 25 and verse 16. He says, Have you found honey? Eat so much as sufficient for thee, lest you be filled therewith and vomited out. What is the principle here? Any pleasure that is overindulged in, that is a hindrance to our walk with God, is an illicit pleasure. You see, if your pleasures are such that they prejudice your next day's duties, if they are such that the main business and interest of life suffer in consequence, they are not pleasures, they are revelings. What is he saying there? Overindulging in the things that we have of the day. That could be anything. But anything in moderation is okay, except not anything, right? Sin in moderation isn't ever right. We think about the idea of moderation. We're to be moderate, temperate, self-controlled. Any pleasure that is overindulged in is an illicit pleasure. Okay? It becomes an addiction. So how do we understand this principle here? Have you found honey? That which is sweet? That which is good in itself? It's not wrong. Eat as much as sufficient. Okay? Just those things that are necessary lest you be filled therewith and vomited out, he says. There will come a time when those things will be sickening and cause problems in a life. What happens when individuals overindulge in anything? You know that it can cause serious difficulty in lives. You see, what is the influence that that pursuit will have on the individual once accomplished? And in turn, the influence that they have on others as well. There is a story told of an individual who wanted to go out on a date with this young man, but this young man was the popular playboy of the time, and her father said, absolutely not, you're not going to go out with him. And I will tell that to my daughters when they get older. You're not going to go out with him. So what happens? She determines that she's already going to go out with him. She's going to go. And uh, he takes her by the side and brings her over to the fire and says, I want you to do something for me before you go out, though. And she said, what's that? And he said, reach down and pick up one of those coals from the fire. And he says, it's not hot. She said, why would I do that? And he said, just do it. And she refused and said, no. And he said, why are you refusing? And she said, because it will leave stains on me. That's the principle. You see, the choices that we make and the pleasures that we pursue can leave marks on us that while in themselves they aren't wrong, we've pursued a course of action that has ruined our influence for Christianity and for God. Can't we? 
when we don't do things in moderation, when we aren't self-controlled, when we aren't temperate, when we don't put those things into practice, then we've become and are pursuing a pleasure that is inconsistent with what the child of God needs to be pursuing. Paul would say, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are expedient. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. He can continue on in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. All things are lawful for me, but all, not all things are expedient. All things are lawful for me, but note, all things edify not. See, we need to be choosy about what we decide we're going to do. And we need to be moderate in our pursuit of those things. You see, all things in moderation, but not necessarily all things. Even that which is not sinful, by the way, can become sinful in the way that it is pursued. Some things, even though they give the appearance of sweetness as well, can leave a stain and a mark on us. Note the verse, have you found honey? If it really is honey, then it will not harm. So we need to be diligent in our perception of those things that we pursue so that they don't harm us in the end. What are the principles here for pleasure? We need to be careful in the things that we pursue. Proverbs 10 and verse 22, he says, The blessing of the Lord it maketh rich, and he addeth no sorrow with it. You see, all pleasure, as the writer of Ecclesiastes says, the preacher, without a view toward God is ultimately meaningless and will not satisfy. Why are people in the shape and the condition they are in today? Because they are trying to fill, as I've heard it said before, that God-shaped hole in their heart with everything that doesn't resemble God. Pleasure is the next pursuit. What can we do in this life to make ourselves feel like we are accomplishing something? You see, there is a way in which we fill that void, and it's not with pleasure, because ultimately pleasure, again, is meaningless without the God of heaven. You see, when God and His Christ are not part of a life, then it's an unfulfilled life, just as Solomon's was when he said, vanity and vexation of spirit, all is vanity under the sun. How many people today are living without God and don't have the knowledge that you and I do? The ability to make decisions for their life that are good and can lead them ultimately to heaven. Because the ultimate goal of this life is what Solomon would write in Ecclesiastes 12, verse 13. And now let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commands, for this is the whole of man. What is our purpose? When we pursue pleasure, we need to make sure that the pleasures that we are pursuing follow these specific principles. One, they don't distract us from our ultimate goal and objective. And that's a home in heaven with God. Number two, we are not using them or having a pleasure at the expense of another, whether that's time, money, affections, obligations, whatever they may be. And lastly, in moderation. We make sure that we are moderate and temperate in our pursuit of those kinds of things. There are pleasures in this life that while are not inherently sinful, can become that way if we take our focus off of our eternal purpose of the God of heaven. How are we choosing the pleasures that we engage in? If you realize this evening that your life needs God, if you realize that things are meaningless without Him, you've not put on, Him on an immersion and you need to do that, responding to that Gospel call, having your sins remissed and being brought into union with Him so that you can have that abundant life that Jesus talks about in John 10 and verse 10. 
we would encourage you to make that right tonight if you have that need. And if you've put Christ on in immersion, and yet you realize that your choices, your pursuits, the pleasures that you've been pursuing have been inconsistent with godly conduct, they've been wrong, or they've even been sinful, we might say that, then we offer an opportunity for you to come and make things right with the congregation, seeking the prayers of the congregation to go to God on your behalf. If you have any need tonight, won't you come as we stand and sing our song of encouragement?